Well, ladies and gentlemen, very warm welcome to this latest lecture in the LSE European Institute's um, Perspectives on Europe public lecture, public lecture series. And uh, today we really are tangling with uh, some of the most uh, imminent and crunchiest issues facing the European Union and particularly its, its eastern and southern neighbourhood where the security threats to Europe are felt particularly keenly, particularly these days, as we all, uh, as we all, as we all know. And uh, it's invaluable for us to have today a perspective from one of the regions which really feels there's that vulnerability in Europe very, very keenly um, indeed. And whether we're talking about um, Islamic army or Ukraine, um, points east and southeast are the areas which seem to be causing us anxiety and I'm sure are taking up a lot of the time of our very distinguished and very welcome speaker um, today because we are delighted um, that Edgar Zrinkovic, Latvia's Minister of Foreign Affairs, should have accepted our invitation to speak at, uh, at, at LSE. Um, he has been Minister of Foreign Affairs since 2011, and uh, before that he was Secretary of State at the Latvian Ministry of Defence, and also head of the President of Latvia's uh, Chancellery. So he has uh, really um, been an um, ideal and influential position, really, to observe um, this uh, evolution in Europe's uh, security environment, not a particularly happy one. But uh, we are very, very much looking forward to hearing what you have to say, Mr. Lincoln. I would say you're very, very welcome to LSE. Thank you. And uh, we will, as, as per usual LSE practice, we will, of course, allow a decent amount of time for some questions um, afterwards. Mr. Rinkiewicz, you are very Thank welcome. You. Well, uh, thank you very much, <clears throat> really, for this very kind introduction. And also, I want to thank the London School of Economics and Political Science, particularly the European Institute, for this invitation. When a couple of months ago we started to work on this presentation, uh, when I was asked to address challenges that European security face, I thought, oh, that's going to be a very easy task. I'll be talking about Russia, I'll be talking about Ukraine, I'll be talking about the Eastern neighborhood. I will spend a little time on terrorism, I will spend a little time on, uh, on migration, but basically uh, it seems that uh, uh, the understanding of what are serious challenges to Europe, to European Union, are easy. Then we got a series of events and actually what I had to do, I had to throw away the very well prepared speech and now I will have to improvise to some extent because of all the events we are seeing as they are in unfolding, be it uh, the Paris terror attacks or the very recent events in uh, the region that is very volatile, the accident with the Russian military plane and the Turkish uh, actions. But uh, let me 
try to summarize some of key challenges as I feel uh, we all are confronted as continent of Europe, also my country, Latvia, that is in the northeast corner of Europe, also bordering Russia, and to some extent since the illegal annexation of Crimea, since events unfolding in the east of Ukraine, also being to some extent in the front of uh, this renewed tension as we have now increased NATO presence, as we have increased number of, of Russian exercises. But first of all, if I have to summarize some key challenges, and here also it is very important to note that while we speak, uh, while we are discussing those issues, there is also profound development in understanding of uh, risks that uh, security of Europe, security also of Latvia is posing that it's not only about the traditional issues that people because of the migration crisis, because terrorism are more and more interested in what's happening in Syria, what's happening in Libya. So the understanding that security issues that challenges to the uh, values we are all facing are actually overarching. So I would say that I have some, and those are equally important points. I think that we all understand that the challenge number one we all are facing is, of course, terrorism. That is, the global threat with no borders or nationalities. We all talk about ISIS or Daesh. We have talked about Al-Qaeda. We are talking about uh, many terrorist groups acting in global and regional and also national level. We all understand that terrorists are now quite a powerful non-state actor with a lot of state actor capabilities. We also understand that we cannot provide only national or regional response, but also this uh, response must be global. And what we have seen recently with all the terror attacks uh, in January in Paris, Charlie Hebdo, in Copenhagen, Paris again, we all understand that actually nobody can actually be spared of such challenge. And that I also understand, and we all understand that this is something that we have to confront all together. Second, I think what we are increasingly facing is that there are countries that are trying to revise the international law and order. We have been confronted with unprecedented events last year when Russia decided uh, to annex in a most illegal way Crimea, the actions in the eastern Ukraine. Also, we have seen some unilateral actions in Syria. We see that some of immediate neighborhood of, of Russia, like what we sometimes in the European Union call Eastern Partnership, countries like Georgia, Moldova, also to some extent also uh, other neighboring countries uh, are being intimidated by this country. And of course here we see that, to my mind, this is about uh, regaining some of the old Cold War status, playing geopolitical game, and of course trying to 
uh, sees the world in a kind of 19th century sphere of influence way. The third, and that is something that we all again have been confronted, people in the United Kingdom in the so-called old Europe in already many years, but also uh, the newer member states of the European Union, especially this year, are also confronted with another challenge, which is migration. And uh, of course we can talk uh, a lot about the root causes, about the issues uh, on migration, but I see also migration issue currently as probably the greatest challenge to the unity of European Union, to the actually whole project of the European Union. And of course, while we have seen that uh, this issue is now probably occupying both levels, European level and national level, that's an issue of continuous debate in Latvia or in Germany or, or in Greece. We also see that um, um, we are confronted with not only the greatest challenge how to, on one hand, uh, fulfill the moral duty to give the shelter to those who are in need, but on the other hand also how to tackle and how to control migration flows in ways that we don't get uncontrolled uh, situation and situation actually spiraling out of control. Uh, and I'm frankly very also concerned that what we have seen over the summer, on one hand, uh, the blame game by European politicians accusing each other, on one hand, on uh, immorality to some extent, on the other hand, on reckless decisions that is actually something that really gets a very dividing line, uh, be it east to west or be it north to south. And the current situation is actually um, getting even more complicated with what we see as the ongoing crisis in Syria, as we see also the inability of the European Union to implement the decisions that are already taken, be it external border control, be it uh, return policy, or be it also the decisions that have been taken already on resettlement and relocation of those people who have already entered the European Union territory. And of course, uh, it is very difficult, uh, difficult, for instance, in my country, where we don't have much of experience of integrating people with different religious, ethnic, uh, cultural background uh, to accept uh, the kind of uh, way how sometimes uh, also EU institutions have been acting. The fourth set of challenges we have been also confronted is, of course, emergent of new forms, what I call new forms of combat. We now already see that cyberspace is as important as, uh, let's say, guarding uh, the critical infrastructure, land, or, 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 or our own security. Because if there is a serious attack against our critical computer systems, it is going to be very much, of course, also influencing not only the way how we live, but also that may uh, be also critical to to the lives of many people. We also see that the information 
uh, information technologies, but also the information as propaganda is getting more and more powerful tool. And here we can talk about the message that we get from ISIS or Daesh through social media, or actually the propaganda that we sometimes see on TV, uh, let's say, for instance, also done by the Russian Federation. I will not go into details to such challenges, but I would be more than happy to discuss if there are some questions and answers as climate change or energy security or scarcity of resources at, at some point is going to influence us as all. But uh, let me just uh, elaborate on some of the points I've just mentioned um, where I do believe we have to uh, really understand that uh, we have to uh, act in a most energetic way to preserve the way how we used to live, to preserve security, uh, to preserve prosperity of our continent. And here I would say that uh, if we look at current set of challenges, it is very important to remember that we cannot do one at the expense of the other. For instance, we are all now thinking how to fight ISIS or Daesh, how to resolve Syrian crisis through political uh, settlement, through actually forming uh, and acting in a coalition. But at the same time, what I sometimes feel, we tend to forget that we have a lot of unfinished business. For instance, we still see that the Russian aggression in Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, uh, has not been resolved. And there are already some voices that think that if we can try to somehow uh, find a way how to engage Russia fighting ISIS, then we probably can do some compromises on uh, Ukraine, on the actually the greatest challenge to international law and order that has been done actually after the end of Second World War. I don't believe that this trading one problem to another can solve both of, of issues. And here I think that if we talk about uh, the situation as we see it developing, it is of paramount importance for us as the European Union, as international community, first to fight the terrorists, to find the way how we can, of course, engage with all countries, how we can use uh, also the uh, our, our ability to engage with, uh, with regional actors like Iran, like Saudi Arabia, like Turkey, with global uh, players, with the member states of United Nations Security Council, through political process addressing Syrian crisis, through uh, fighting ISIS both domestically here in Europe as well as on the ground in Syria, Iraq. But at the same time, we shouldn't forget also about the way that uh, we also have to go to solve the situation, for instance, in Ukraine. And from that point of view, I do believe that, uh, well, uh, currently uh, we all are concentrated on discussions, uh, for instance, how best we can cooperate within the European Union on information intelligence sharing, 
passenger name register also how we could engage uh, in, in, in tackling Syria conflict, how we could fight ISIS on the ground, but at the same time we also should not forget that uh, this situation to some extent uh, is the one which we can only solve if we are principled in our response. If we talk about uh, the current uh, situation uh, with what we see as uh, revisionist powers, the attempts of Russia to uh, regain some, let's say, territory, some spheres of influence, I think that our response has been remarkably united and to some extent efficient. We have been applying economic sanctions as well as political and uh, diplomatic pressure. We have been able to have Minsk agreements. Unfortunately, we see that Minsk agreements are not being implemented. And I believe that we have to keep this uh, policy of insisting of full implementation of Minsk agreements. I see that so far the European Union is united in this, and I believe that we will be able to agree on prolongation of sanctions. But then uh, we also understand that uh, this situation in eastern Ukraine, the Ukraine reform process, will need a long-term engagement. What we need to have as the European strategy vis-à-vis -vis Russia when it comes to uh, issues, the challenges we have, I think that this strategy has to be comprised of two key elements. One is containment when we see that Russia is challenging the international law and order, and that containment we have seen is in form of economic sanctions, in form of political pressure when it comes to uh, the situation in eastern Ukraine, or in form of increased NATO presence in the Baltic region. Uh, while we have our own historic experience with Soviet occupation, and that triggered a lot of anxiety last year, we have seen also that NATO response in the region has been adequate. We still need to work on, let's say, further deterrence measures in order that uh, there is no even slightest uh, willingness to, 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 to challenge NATO, to challenge Article 5. But at the same time, we see that those sets of uh, measures taken have been actually efficient. And second, yes, we have also good examples where engagement works. Iranian nuclear talks have been one good example. I think we were all prepared already in many years since the beginning of Syrian crisis to work with Russia to solve this uh, crisis uh, since its beginning. Unfortunately, we have seen also that there have been blockage of uh, many of initiatives at the level of United Nations Security Council. Now, when we see that uh, uh, the only way how we can tackle, for instance, the current flow of uh, refugees from Syria, when we have to tackle the fight against ISIS, I believe we can still try to find the ways how to cooperate and coordinate our actions with Russian Federation, even despite the fact that since the end of September, the unilateral 
actions by this country, bombing of not only ISIS but also moderate opposition to President Assad, have made those tasks more complicated. And of course, the latest incident, of course, is not helping. At the same time, uh, I do believe that engagement element of the strategies that we have to adopt would be the right one, and we should, where it is in our interests, in interests of uh, the Russian Federation, we should find the same formula of cooperation like we did it during the Iran nuclear talks. Having said that, we cannot, of course, uh, give up our principles. The fact that Crimea has been illegally connected is there, and we have to uh, keep up pressure on so-called non-recognition policy. We still need to make a pressure to Russia to finally implement Minsk agreements and actually also to leave alone those countries that have chosen their European or Euro-Atlantic path like Georgia and Moldova. And that's an immediate uh, neighborhood. On issues that uh, I was talking about migration and, and to some extent um, also the terrorist activities, I don't have any better recipes you have been hearing all the time. It's tackle root causes, try to get the development assistance programs, trade instruments in such places as Africa, as uh, Middle East, in order to eradicate poverty, eradicate uh, also sources of conflict where necessary, also the need for military operations, peacekeeping operations must be considered. But I think also that uh, we all understand that if we uh, do not, and I already said that, do not put in place not only very nice policies, and if we don't implement them, then unfortunately I'm afraid that uh, the whole concept uh, on which the European Union has been built, and I'm coming from that generation that still remembers Soviet Union, well, not so well, but I entered university exactly when on that year when Soviet Union collapsed and my generation was very much willing uh, to return to European family to be a part of uh, Europe, the whole and free and at peace, then that kind of concept with all our freedoms, with all what we have used to, that Europe may disappear because we are going to see the increase of radical left and right movements that's already on the rise. We are going to see already, and we are seeing already, actually, the increase of calls to limit uh, free movement, to abolish Schengen zone. What's next? I think that next is going to be the challenge to the whole idea of uh, nations working together, the European Union as the union of strong nation states, and then some of old rivalries, some old conflicts and weakness of Europe as a whole will be damaging to all of us. And particularly, of course, uh, to smaller nations, to nations like the Baltic nations, that's where even if we have sometimes very uneasy decision-making, uh, even if we sometimes are complaining that Brussels is uh, taking decisions not counting on 
on, on smaller nations of the national interests, I do believe that it's still in all of our interests to try to do our best to preserve Europe. And what I'm, I'm seeing in last uh, last months is a very, very worrying uh, sign. Uh, we also have been confronted with the issue of terrorism, I've already said, where we have seen that uh, to some extent, again, our inability to share information, to cooperate uh, between uh, various law enforcement and uh, intelligence and counterintelligence services actually have already uh, led to multiple terror acts. During our presidency, we were initiating and we tried to address those key issues. Unfortunately, not everything that we were envisaging was fulfilled. It's still uh, up to European Parliament to approve, for instance, measures as passenger name register uh, and regulation on, on the exchange of information between law enforcement um, agencies and, and um, uh, airlines. Uh, we have been talking about fight against foreign terrorist fighters, uh, actually also implementing uh, all relevant United Nations Security Council resolution on uh, fight against foreign terrorist fighters, uh, making it actually a criminal offense. Again, not in all EU member states we have got this implemented. But I believe, and so it happens that a couple of hours ago we just saw the information that uh, even countries that has never been on the radar screen of terrorist groups like ISIS, like some of our Baltic neighbors, have been now openly threatened via social network that they could be next target. So I think that this realization that either we work together, we address vigorously those problems together through probably sometimes uh, giving up uh, some limited but still freedoms uh, and, and, and preserve security of our citizens uh, is very important. Uh, but uh, let me end, and I really enjoy always getting questions and answering them rather than having a long talk. Uh, let me just end by saying that uh, I think that one thing that we all should understand is that uh, we are in a process where uh, we are being attacked on numerous uh, fronts. Our values, our lifestyle, uh, quite liberal lifestyle and values have been attacked by radical groups, by terrorists, there is also countries that believe that we have to change the whole uh, international order and system. And what we need to some extent is probably we have to build the kind of what I call fortress Europe, but not by erecting walls, but actually by strengthening uh, in a way as much as we can our common security and defense policy, common security and foreign policy, um, also strengthening the way how our societies operate. I had quite a good discussion with my British colleague yesterday evening, Minister for Europe, David Liddington. I also had a nice discussion this morning at Chatham House also about the United Kingdom in the 
European Union. And let me end by saying that we do believe that uh, we need a very strong and vigorous United Kingdom within the European Union for security, for economic reasons, but also for the reasons that without the United Kingdom, European Union wouldn't be the same. And I do believe that also through addressing some of key challenges, uh, some of issues that have been put by the British government in a way that is balanced and keeping intact with the key principles of the European Union, but still finding the way how to accommodate also concerns, we would actually strengthen the Union because we have seen that only together, only uh, all of us uh, through cooperation, through sometimes also heated discussions, we can find the real way how to strengthen the European response to all those challenges to actually strengthen the Union and ultimately I do hope that uh, we will be able to tackle all of all of issues that we are confronted both within European level, outside, and of course also in many cases on national level. I would probably go to questions and answers now. Happily. Well, Mr. Rinkovitz, what a very interesting set of remarks you've given us. I'm very grateful um, for them, and uh, we hope to tease even more out, uh, out of you in the time that this is remaining um, to us. Are you happy to stand there and take yes, there, or do you want to say yes? Okay, splendid. Well, then I will just uh, I'll say the usual LSE protocol. So is this a point of order, or just you're indicating that you're keen to ask a question in due course? Yeah. No. Sorry, I, I just wondered if this was a proce- procedural question you had or, or no, what? No, no. no. Okay. Well, if I could ask, um, uh, yes, please raise your, your, uh, your, your hand if you wish to be called to speak. Um, and if you are called to speak, please say who you are, what your affiliation is. And as I always say, please keep it, please keep it short and sweet. No, no long. Not, not no. like I. <laughs> No need, for long, no need for long speeches, and we'll try to get through as many questions as, as, as we can. Um, okay, um, I'll take a couple of questions at a time, if that's, if that, if that's all right. There's a lady there, um, and there's a lady in the pink top who's also caught my attention. I'm making a note of others who want to speak as well. So, yeah, if you'd like to kick off. Hello, uh, my name is Irene, uh, Irene Hills. I work here at LSC. My question is, uh, first of all, thank you for your talk, and I would like to know um, your opinion on the viability of this European Union now with the migration crisis and also the grand coalition against ISIS that uh, President Hollande and... um, Putin are trying to form. I have heard that all the three Baltic presidents have refused to enter any alliance where Russia is a member. Do you think it is going to threaten the unity of the European Union? Thank you. Let's take that question actually as it is, and then I'll move on. So, um, actually, Mr. Rinkovitz, uh, I know it's an important and quite existential question. Uh, so, I was wondering if you'd like to answer the latest question. Thank you very much. I was trying to, to get more questions and to skip some <laughs> answers, but uh, thank you very much um, for um, 
for the question, well, viability of the European Union. That's the whole point I, I tried to, to deliver, is that I'm really concerned that uh, the current handling of the migration crisis is the probably greatest challenge in decades to the European Union. Well, Latvia is member of EU only for 11 years, but well, it's already quite a time, so uh, we have also some our experiences and some of our knowledge, and I do believe that to some extent the refugee crisis is not something that created this crisis of European Union. Actually, it has shown that there are some unsolved issues within the Union, that we still have some, I would say, mental differences between the West and the East, the North and the South. We have had already the whole uh, Brexit problem, let's say, when we have seen the uh, approach to some of economic and financial, um, let's say, policies in the South of European Union and in the North. We have been sometimes even, as we laugh back home, the fiscal Taliban of Europe enforcing a lot of very tough economic measures. And then, of course, we are expecting also that other countries in trouble would do that. But actually, the Greek crisis was developing from structural problem of the whole Eurozone. The first structural issues that we have seen that if you don't have uh, good governance in the Eurozone, if you don't address some issues in a unified manner, that ultimately you get up into the situation where you have uh, such problems. Migration is actually the same, showing that, yes, we have Schengen Zone, which is one of the most cherished freedoms of the European Union, but then again, we haven't been able to develop a set of unified policies when it comes to defending and protecting external EU borders. Every country that is bordering, let's say, with non-EU country does it in a different way. So, in many cases, we have seen that actually uh, those problems we are tackling come out of uh, not perfect uh, political and structural arrangements. So we have some compromises, and then we all of a sudden see that uh, not everything that has been envisaged uh, works because there are different approaches in different member states. And I think that this is something that uh, also from time to time uh, creates those challenges we then have to address. And of course, uh, yes, we have seen also the profound difference in the thinking. Uh, for instance, in summer, we have seen German government, the Austrian government, the Swedish government uh, saying that uh, first we have to admit everyone, then we have to check who is who and then decide whether that person is a refugee and qualifies for the asylum or not. In the Eastern and Central Europe and in the Baltics, we have a different feeling. We want to see that uh, there are proper checks and balances and that we can really see the person qualifies before it ent he or she enters. And then you have also those, uh, those different, uh, well, I would say even parallel universes of, of, of thinking. 
on the Grand Coalition on ISIS uh, and, uh, and our stance. Look, I think that uh, there has not been a very precise reporting on the discussion of the Baltic presidents. That's first. Uh, what I can say is that we have already the Grand Coalition consisting of more than 16 nations fighting ISIS. Some countries are participating with warplanes, some countries like Latvia participate uh, through different working groups, uh, the financing uh, issues, intelligence, counterintelligence sharing, it's of course up to our own capabilities. And I don't exclude that we can find a way how to coordinate with Russia at least up to the level that we don't shoot each other's planes or, or, or at least up to the level that uh, we don't uh, start the Third World War. That we need to engage Russia into, first of all, political process in Syria, because we can't uh, find a solution and to find the kind of lasting peace and stability uh, solution on, 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 on this uh, problem if we don't involve President Assad and the moderate opposition, except of course terrorists, if we don't involve Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Russia, United States, well, EU, uh, many European countries, many regional players, because if we don't solve this four years, four and a half years conflict, uh, if we don't coordinate to some extent and involve Russia, then it, we will not be able to fight ISIS in the most efficient way. So from that point of view, I don't exclude the coordination between coalition. But look, Russia itself, uh, when it decided at the end of September to start bombing of uh, ISIS and also moderate opposition, uh, it didn't want to be part of that coalition. That call came only uh, after the first uh, very... I would say tragic uh, events like the explosion of Russian airliner over Sinai at the end of October, like the Paris attacks. And I do believe that uh, we cannot look, uh, create another coalition only because one country wants it and, and, and on its own terms, because we have still differing uh, objectives. The first and major objective of Russia, in my opinion, is to keep President Assad in power. We all understand that you cannot see Syria with Assad for a long term, but you can probably discuss about transition period if it is in the interest of stability. And second, it's about well, regaining some yeah. geopolitical fault. And from that point of view, I do believe that uh, we should find the ways how to coordinate, but I don't think that uh, there is going to be now uh, kind of grand coalition on the table soon enough, especially after what happened two days ago. So uh, I want to really say that uh, those quotes by international press at this time were not very correct about the Baltic states refusing entirely. That was a bit more nuanced, at least in Latvia's case. It was a much more nuanced position. Thank you very much, Minister. Um, yes, the lady in the pink top there, I must keep faith with, I think. 
Um, hi, uh, thank you for your talk. My name is Daina Rudusha. I work for um, an international NGO called Care International, but I'm also Latvian. So it's, uh, I mean, it's very, it's very interesting to hear about these topics from a Latvian perspective. Um, there's a couple of things that I wanted to say. A quick comment on, uh, on Ukraine. Um, you have been a very outspoken critic of, of Russian aggression in Ukraine, and I think your colleagues in the UK have also done quite a good job of it, um, unlike other colleagues in Europe. Um, what I think is interesting is that on a public level, um, among the people, I don't think it's something that people really know very much about. Uh, when I moved back to London in the spring, I was actually quite shocked at how little people know about what is happening in Ukraine and how little they are worried about it. People are worried about ISIS, they're worried about terrorism, they're wor worried about immigration, but... Russian aggression doesn't, isn't something that is on people's radar. Um, the question that I wanted to ask um, is in relating to what you said about um, the European response to Russian aggression being quite effective in terms of um, economic sanctions and political pressure. Um, do you think that is enough for Crimea? Or is Crimea collateral damage? Have, have we lost it to Russia? Or is there more that we can do to end the annexation? Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll take some more. Take some more. Yes. Um, over more. there, the lady over there, then I'll hop around. Now, just more as a continuation of the previous speaker, actually, my question will be. I'm also from Latvia. My name is Antonina. Uh, so, I wonder, again, about the perspective uh, of our uh, eastern um, neighbors, uh, that um, after the Russia started the... I would say bombing ISIS, or they call it they bombing only ISIS, but you know, um, and we see uh, it's not going so very well, maybe for Russia in terms of their inside uh, popularity or for the for the populism what they're using inside of country, and if we will see some kind of uh, failure, for example for the Russia in terms of um, to regain, as you said, this geopolitical role or power. Uh, do you think that they can turn back to Ukraine? Because we see now that they're a bit of, you know, slowed down the participation in, a Ukraine, in Eastern Ukraine. Um, do you think it could be, uh, again, a threat to Ukraine if the Russia will fail um, to show how powerful they are <laughs> in terms of... Um, Syria conflict. So this is kind of, and uh, also a bit of the, how do you think, uh, maybe you can explain also the people who are not from, uh, from our region, uh, what the difference between uh, perception of the refugees in uh, Eastern Europe and Baltics as well, uh, between the refugees from the south or, uh, or Syria or Afghanistan or between the refugees from the Ukraine. So what we also see as a issue and what kind of we are in Eastern Europe more willing to address and when the other Europe doesn't see as previous colleague said it is a big problem. Thank you very much. So I think, uh, would you like to, you want yeah, to take a third? Take the third. third one. The yes of course, yes of course. Yes. Um, so the gentleman there, and, um, yes, and, um, and then I will come to you in the next, because we have one more round. My yes please quickly. Okay, thank you. My name is Sun Hao. I'm a student on international relations of UCL. 
I would like to ask a question of long-term perspective. Minister, do you think one day in the future, Russia can be incorporated in the big Western family, just like Latvia in 1990s? Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, the short answer is hope dies the last. <laughs> but I think that uh, in a bit longer way, I could say that we had all great expectations when Soviet Union collapsed that Russia uh, will become the part of greater family. Uh, being uh, you know, democracy uh, where human rights, political rights uh, are being observed and, and also a responsible actor. But then I think that, and this applies not only to Russia, but this applies also to Ukraine, to some other, not only even <coughs> Eastern neighborhood countries, but also to some other countries in the world. Somehow I have felt that we repeat one mistake all the time. And that's something that is really very characteristic of the way, and I'm sitting already for more than four years in the European uh, Foreign Affairs Council and uh, NATO ministerial meetings, we somehow always try either to put all the emphasis and support to what we perceive good guys, and we tend sometimes to neglect that those good guys at some point turn somehow the way around and are not anymore good guys. Or we tend, as we unfortunately did, uh, and that's a mistake we have to recognize uh, even two years ago, we make one issue or one person uh, as, as a great, uh, what I can call problem, and that issue all of a sudden gets all us as hostage of, uh, of all our, our policies. For instance, just to illustrate the point, uh, we were all fighting for the release of former Ukrainian Prime Minister Timoshenko up to the point where we refused to sign association agreement with Ukraine, up to the point where we were not able even to maneuver. And then all of a sudden we all found that uh, we have actually lost the opportunity probably to sign association agreement uh, with Ukraine in earlier stage when there were no so many and fierce, fearless uh, objectives, uh, fearless objectives of, uh, of Russia. So it happened also with Russia. We tended to have great support to President Yeltsin, sometimes neglecting that actually not much has happened. So that's, that's our uh, modus operandi, which I think we have to review very, very carefully, because that's, that's a mistake to put too much at stake only because we like the guy or we dislike the guy. So from that point of view, yes, I do believe that uh, not next year and not probably in the next decade, but there is a good perspective that Russia can become trusted and good member of, of family, but I also don't want to predict when. So we still have to understand that currently the propaganda machine in Russia is very tough, 
I just I watched Russia today this morning before going out of hotel room and the whole machine now is uh, sorry for jargon but rushing Turkey and, and, and telling that you know we always knew that Turkey is uh, accomplice of ISIS that they are providing support and so on the question, the big question is uh, if that's so and if those people knew that two or three days ago why they didn't uh, say it before that particular accident so the propaganda machine is very powerful President Putin is enjoying popularity and I think that it may take a lot of time before we get to such kind of change on uh, two issues on refugees uh, you see the, the, the trouble is that uh, people are very much afraid what I already said of strangers let's say so and when you have also some very responsible politicians telling you on a daily basis that all refugees are terrorists and especially point very well now enforced by, by, by what we heard after uh, terror attacks in Paris that at least two guys entered through Greece so that really is a great proof even if we all understand that refugees are, are trying to flee, uh, to flee from, from, from ISIS and from, from war zone. If you have people of different religious, cultural, ethnic background, of course uh, there is this kind of natural fear. And only if people would confront and see that those are the same people, they probably would a little bit change their mind. At the same time, uh, yes, Ukraine is much closer. We know Ukrainians also through living together in, 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 in Soviet Union. But at the same time, well, we all see that uh, right now uh, we don't have the number of refugees leaving Ukraine. So that's also a bit theoretical question. But in our internal debates, a very heated political debates back home, uh, we also try to remind to those who are against any decisions, any responsibilities that should be taken by the countries that one day it may so happen that also there is enormous flow from Ukraine or from any other country in the region which then will be crying out loud, help us. But at the same time, at the same time I think also that we are already at the point where if those decisions that have been decided are not implemented on external border control, checking who is coming and so on, in that case, we are going to blow up the whole, the whole notion of humanity and, uh, and, and the values, and then we will be dealing uh, with extremists on one hand and also with uh, the issues of, of, of really how to, how to strengthen uh, our own uh, capabilities. So it's, it's a very difficult, difficult issue. Uh, people in London do not care so much about uh, Ukraine. Well, you know, many people in Latvia wouldn't care about, and as I told you in my introductory remarks, uh, up a couple of months ago, they were not caring about uh, what's happening in Libya and Syria. Let's face it. We are all preoccupied with what we are confronted on our daily basis. Uh, so it's up to decision makers, it's up to politicians, it's up to also academia and journalists to some extent uh, to 
to explain that world is too much interdependent and what happens in Ukraine may also directly or indirectly influence uh, people on the street here in London or what's happening in Syria actually is already influencing people in Paris or in, in Riga. So this is, uh, this is actually normal way of, of the way how we think to some extent. That people are preoccupied with, with many other issues. But, uh, but I do believe that um, also when it comes to the overall European response, even despite the fact that politicians really like to make doorsteps saying how tough we will be agreeing or not agreeing on anything, when we get into room, even after seven or eight hours of discussion, we can find the consensus. And so far, I think also Russia was very surprised of the unity and efficiency of, of those policies. And partly the fact that the conflict has been to some extent frozen in the eastern Ukraine. Uh, we still can say, uh, thanks to, to, to those policies we have developed and we have to continue. Crimea annexation, uh, well, I think that in 1948, if anyone would have to answer the question about the Baltic states and the Soviet occupation of Baltic states, nobody would be saying, you know, that we think that they will regain independence. There was this non-recognition, there was not even non-recognition through certain economic embargoes and political uh, sanctions, because there is a separate non-recognition policy. Uh, but still, we've seen that if you keep the issue on the table, if you speak about it, if you don't let it disappear, at least from the table of decision makers, it may actually make a difference in the long run. So I, I don't believe that we can say that Crimea has been lost forever, but I also don't think that we are going to see any progress in, in coming years. So we have to get their strategic patience combined with, with, with strategic non-recognition. And on, uh, on bombing ISIS and, and Syria and Ukraine, look, Russia is as much interested in fighting ISIS uh, as, as we are. We don't need really to make any concessions because they do understand that uh, it's also the challenge to them. The only trouble is that we see a little bit different uh, the strategic objective on Syria as such, and I already touched upon. Uh, we don't want to keep the conflict ongoing. We want to see this stable Syria, the Syria that rebuilds, but President Assad should at some point, and his forces should be hosted. And, and that's where the big difference is, and that's where I don't believe that uh, it is right to trade, let's say, Ukraine for Syria or vice versa. Those are two absolutely separate issues, and we have to keep them in that way. So, Minister, we're going to take just one more light, <coughs> lightning question, from me, and then I know you have to be on your way. Uh, the gentleman has already got a... Um, uh, a microphone. <coughs> so, test of your concision and compression. You have okay. two minutes between you. Right. Um, thank you very much, Minister. Um, the name's Ewan Grant, um, former UK Customs Intelligence Analyst for the ex-Soviet countries and the new EU member states. Um, common security and defence policy and the cultural thing, east, west, north, south. Do you see any signs in the view of Ukraine and Syria, etc., and the migration crisis that the um, European Commission staff you deal with 
on these issues are showing a greater understanding of the challenges you and your neighbours face. I do believe that Brussels institutionally has a problem with these issues and I think it's going to be quite a, quite a struggle to uh, increase their awareness and energy in these matters. I think they face very major challenges. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that will be a very short answer. We can take another one if we have time. Well, it, uh, it depends on your delegation. I'm told that uh, five, okay. five to two is when you need to be aware. Okay, let's, let's do one more. Then. Sorry, who was that? Okay, then. Just a very, very short answer. You see, uh, we all understand each other when we do the talking. But we get into trouble at both levels, European and its institutions and national levels, when we have to implement what has been agreed upon. It's not only about will to implement, but it's also about resources. Because we need to increase to some extent both national and probably European budgets to tackle border security, to tackle intelligence, counterintelligence. We are going to discuss on Sunday at the European Council with Turkey the assistance package up to 3 billion for refugee camps in, uh, in, in Turkey. We still have Jordan, we still have uh, Libya, and I think this is going to be at some point also the question of political will. How much resources are we willing to spend because everything we do costs and here I think that uh, if you talk with anyone we understand each other well if you have to start to implement then the real challenge starts with that thank you very much thank you very much